The Worker Learner Podcast is brought to you by the Professional Learning Hub, Griffith University's platform for executive and professional education. Bringing together the expertise of Griffith University's academics and research centres, our professional learning is designed to deliver creative solutions for the workplace of tomorrow. Whether you are looking for opportunities for yourself or your team, we have you covered. My name is Saffron Benner and I'm the Sustainable Development Goals Manager at Griffith University and I'll be your host for this episode of The Worker Learner and I'm talking today to Hannah Maloney. Hannah, you are a a permaculture educator, a community worker, a landscape designer, an author but most impressively a ukulele player. (laughs) Uh, But most people may know you best from ABC's Gardening Australia where you're a presenter. So welcome and lovely to meet you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, before we begin, I'd just like to acknowledge uh, the traditional owners of the unceded lands that I'm speaking from today, the Yuggera, Jagera and Turrbal peoples, and I'm in Mianjin, Brisbane, and Hannah, you're in Lutruwita, Hobart. Well, actually, I do live in, um, oh. in I do live in Lutruwita, Tasmania, Nipalina, Hobart. Today, I'm regional Adelaide. And I've just got here and I'm yet to find out whose country I'm on. So I'll, after our chat, I'll be going directly and I'll be asking because it's so nice when we travel to learn as we go. A hundred percent. And, yeah, Adelaide's a, an amazing, fascinating. South Australia is an extraordinary place, Absolutely. a very beautiful place. Yeah. So I thought I might ask you to please explain to us a little bit more about exactly what permaculture is and why it's important to eco-health and the environment uh, because I think it's something that maybe is not as widely understood or practised anymore. Um, so can you tell us a bit more exactly what it is and, and why we need it? Sure. So permaculture was developed in the 1970s by two people, Bill Mollison and David Holmgren, in Lutruwita, Tasmania, where I now live. And it very much came from the desire to manage landscapes more holistically. Uh, so it was, it was kind of developed around permanent agriculture for having long-term systems of ecological health. However, very quickly it became much uh, more broad, it didn't not for not just landscape management, but very holistic to include all elements of human behaviour. So that could be education and culture, health and wellbeing, governance, finance, everything. And that's when it became around um, how do we design and develop permanent culture, not just agriculture. And, it, and with that uh, lens, it has uh, a universal framework, which is three ethics, earth care, people care and fair share, and then a dozen principles, which I won't go through now, but they act as a, a kind of like a checklist that you can use if you're designing your farm or a garden, but also if you're designing a governance system for a whole organisation or a council. So they're incredibly transferable. And that's what really piqued my interest like I did come I was originally came for the organic gardening and farming but I stayed for the holistic design framework that I could apply to anything in my work and I think that's its real strength and I happen to use it in a way that I put into solution-based activism like where we learn we, we, we uh, you know acutely aware of some of the big problems or challenges of our times but where there's so many solutions we can throw our weight behind and that's where you find me going what are the solutions to these issues and I think that's where permaculture has real potential and real strength uh, 
So I think to summarise, there is something for everyone. It doesn't matter if you're a gardener or, or a CEO of a big company or any a, a full-time parent and anything in between. There's a way of drawing on permaculture's um, holistic design principles to, you know, enhance your life but enhance everybody's life as well. I love it. It sounds like an earlier version of the sustainable development goals in one way, the the 17 goals which are interconnected and can be divided into people, planet, prosperity and are a guide for action. Mm. And it sounds like permaculture is a little bit like that in that it's both an ideology and a practice that's aiming towards solutions-based sustainability. Yeah. Is, is that reasonable? Absolutely. You'll find lots of crossovers with with things like that but other cultures and i think there's i mentioned that it's quite universal like there's something like people everybody wants to look after the earth and look after people and have enough of resources to go around it's like really common threads that you'll find in every culture every continent everywhere and i think that's it's um it's, a, it's kind of like the common sense which may not be so common anymore but which everybody can relate to They're, oh yeah that's that feels good i want to be part of that thing so it's quite intuitive and very, um, very much relevant to everybody. Well, of course, the the original permaculture is first peoples, mm. you know, indigenous approach oh. to caring for country, caring for community. It's it's that holistic. Yeah, it, it, we're all part of the world, the land, the earth, and and each other, and, and we need to look after everything. Yeah, great point, Saffron. Permaculture stands on the very big and broad shoulders of First Nations people all over the world. And it's so important to acknowledge that when we're teaching different strategies or techniques or philosophies that they have really deep origins all around the globe. Fabulous. So you grew up in Mianjin yeah. in Brisbane, in West End, I believe, yeah. in an inner urban nursery. And this gave you a strong sense of community engagement as well as the environmental education. Now that you're in Tasmania, where your work uh, includes developing community engagement in relation to environmental and social health. So we know that climate change disasters like floods and bushfires bring people together and often change how they interact and how they think about climate change. But on the other hand, technological changes in urban lifestyles tend to increase our social isolation and anxiety. So there's the two sides to the, to the coin. Can you share some simple steps, which you also outline in in your book um, most recently, um, that we can take in our workplaces and neighbourhoods to create a stronger sense of community without waiting for disaster to strike? Yeah, I think that's a key thing, without waiting for disaster to strike because there's so much we can do before those moments come and disasters are incredible at galvanising people and to get things done but we can be so much more prepared as a community. And so I think there's, depending where you are, I can't, what did I outline in my book, Saffron, that you're referring to? I, there's like quite a few angles I could go on here. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I know. But you, you again, you have a very holistic approach yeah. in terms of everything from des- how you design your house, oh, for yeah. example, how you design your garden, yeah. how you... Um, how you live, how you shop, how you uh, interact with your community. I think maybe if you can explain a little bit more about those steps because I think those are proactive ways of, um, yeah, of of mitigation Mm. um, 
and engagement at the same time. Right. So um, and I should mention your book is called uh, The Good Good Life. Yeah. The Good Life. Yeah. yeah. And it's all about how to grow a better world. Um, but yeah. that's great because because often when we think about these big challenges and climate change is definitely way up there. It can feel really disempowering. It's like, what are, what can I do? What can one little person do? Uh, and we can do so much. We have we control a whole life, which is your own. So you can very much take control of your physical house, whether it's renting or owning or travelling, whatever that might be. You can take control of your landscape, which might be renting or owning or a pot plant, whatever that might be. And you can take control of how you are, how you move through the world, whether that's through transport um, options and. Examples that I um, we've done in our homes, you know, we've retrofitted our home to be as energy efficient as possible. Like these things, they're quite normalised now, which is fantastic. But 10, 20 years ago, it was it was almost um, like just dismissed. It's like, oh, you know, why would you do that? Uh, but it's really can be incredibly effective. And there's a whole conversation around rewiring Australia now and energy efficiency, moving away from gas and really pointing our collective energy towards the type of renewable energy we want for the future. So I always point out the individual is the collective, like the, what, what we do uh, contributes to the collective good. And I think that's such a beautiful thought to hang on to. Um, we grow heaps of food at our house, but some people, they're like, I don't want to grow food. I'm like, fair enough, you know. <laughs> but you can choose where you get your food from, whether it's by your purchasing power or you, you support other people to grow food in your community. Like there's a lot of things that we can do there. And and things with um, transport, we had a car share for three years where we didn't own a car at all. We just used our friend's car. Uh, we do now have an electric car. But the biggest thing I love, and it's not just about transport, is it's like a fun game in my head. It's like, how much stuff can I share in my community? And that's whether using other people's things or sharing our things. We had a vacuum cleaner share for one year. <laughs> and then one day we moved away, which is annoying for me. <laughs> but it's like you can, it can be as big as small. But the key thing with all that thread is build community, build local community. You don't have to be best friends, but you do need to know each other's names and have a sense of who's in your geographical region and how can you support each other to have a really good life which could be sharing vacuum cleaners or it could just be going oh that person around the corner needs help watering their garden because she's got a sore leg whatever it might be but when crisis does come uh, we are more connected and that's a safety net to hold us yeah I think that idea of uh, a sharing economy is, yeah. is really interesting I was at a a, a lunch the, the other day that was to do with circular economy uh, and the guest speaker was a guy who's worked on introducing circular economy policies and strategies in London. Mm. And one of the points he made was that one of the advantages of things like iPhones uh, and smartphones is that it has introduced the idea of sharing to people that uh, and share and, you know, Uber is a ride share. Yeah. It's, it's not ideal by any means. But I think uh, I like the idea of, uh, redirecting people with that sharing mindset mm. to personal empowerment mm. and to empowerment in the community. Yeah. Um, can you tell me, is there something that actually gets you down about the state of the world? You're, oh, you're such yeah. a wonderful, positive no, <laughs> person. I think and good. as I work in sustainability and I often feel, you know, you kind of have to drag yourself back up yeah. to hope sometimes. So what is it that gets you down and how, how do you come back from that? How do you then yeah. get back to self-empowerment? Look, 
you know, so this is a lifelong practice, you know, we all have our ups and downs, like, uh, but people do see, ask me this question a lot, Hannah, why are you so happy all the time when there's so much to be sad about? I'm like, oh, I get it. Um, I have spent a lot of time thinking and researching and keeping up to date with things like climate change and politics of the day, whether that's cultural and environmental issues, there's a lot to be sad about with our current trajectory. I get it. And I think it's really important not to ignore those facts or ignore what's happening in the politics of the day. I'm a very political person and people say, stop being so political. I'm like, never. <laughs> because that means we have to be engaged to form the world that we want to form to create that. And that's, so I pay very close attention. What I I, I mentioned earlier, I, I'm very aware of all the challenges, but I'm really aware of the solutions. And that's where I dwell. I don't dwell on the problems. I dwell on the solutions. And I dwell um, on the people who are already living those solutions into life or advocating for them. I'm like, look how many good people there are. There's more of them, good, really active people, than there are of people who are maybe denying or um, actively trying to prevent that, a progressive change. There's more of us. And, and I don't want to get into an us and them kind of divisive conversation. However, there's a lot of good people out there uh, and I, I just think on them a lot and I really I really try to be connected to as many as possible. It gives me huge joy, huge joy just to go, look how what a, what a beautiful community to be a part of. And, uh, and I think the more we lift each other up, sometimes um, we might critique each other a bit too harshly, I feel. So like the more we lift each other up within sustainability and progressive politics, the more we can achieve together. Yeah, I, I think the focus on solutions-based is, is really powerful and important. What advice would you give to people who are solutions-based and are trying to implement solutions? But it's not always easy in uh, our workplaces, in our homes. If we rent, it's not always easy to implement, uh, you know, sustainable change for energy or, you know, anything like that. And it's the same in workplaces. Workplaces can be very challenging to try and implement genuine ongoing sustainability change even I mean I know it here at the university you know we we struggle to still get the people to put the right thing in the right bin mm. um, so there's there's ongoing education and awareness that happens there but when you come up against systemic change whether that's in your home or in your workplace mm. what are some ways we can go about trying to implement change mm. or address change yeah so you're kind of going from macro to micro like in, even in your house there's so many barriers to you know to doing all the things like we can't afford to do everything we want to do in our house because it's a, it's a financial barrier you know but we do what we can and I think that's a really important thing what can I do here maybe it's not the as big as I would like it to be but it's something and I think doing something is so much better than doing nothing I really hold on to that tightly and on a more macro maybe in your work or community context where there's maybe bigger things at play, more people involved, more dynamics, more considerations, more paperwork, all the things. I think again, it's like, well, yeah, we want to be, we want to be over there, but we're over here. How do we get from A to B? It's like, well, what's the first step? And I know that's, I know that can feel insignificant, but that's the only way those other steps can keep going. And the other thing I really hold on to that is that this is multi generational work. We're not going to do on a more macro scale. We're not going to achieve everything in our, in our very short lifetimes. Even if we live to one hundred years old, we're not going to tick all the boxes. And the people before us have been working so hard to get us to where we are, and then we can keep that work going. We're standing on their shoulders, and so the next people come, the generations after us, 
they can pick up that baton and keep going. So that's, as an activist, I've had to really retrain my brain going, oh, we, we lost a campaign or we didn't, that election didn't go the way that I, we thought it should go or, it's actually, well, this is a gener- multi-generational conversation and we've just got to keep, keep growing everything we can with all our hearts and with a, uh, a, like a love and joy-based approach so we, ha- we can foster all those good things in the process. Well, you're inspiring me. Oh, uh, it, it can be very hard <laughs> yes. sometimes, I think, to have that. It's great to have that long vision. Mm. But the frustration, I think, also sometimes comes when you feel like you need to, everything needs to happen faster yes. because climate change is imminent and we're already in it. Um, and you, often, I think, people need to respond or, or adapt or make mm. change faster. But at the same time, I do appreciate that it's not up to us alone, that there, yeah. is, there is work to be done to ensure that it continues. Mm. Yeah, and I, I want to be clear, um, um, we have to throw everything we can at this. I, I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't, we can't be half-assed about it, you know. I think we have to throw everything we can. Uh, some people will have more capacity than others. Other people are just trying to make sure they have a roof over their head, food on the table. They should keep focusing on that. But people who have more capacity, I have more capacity than others. I'm like, um, I think about privilege as well. I'm more privileged than others. I, I think of privilege as, like as a muscle, like how, how much can I flex that privilege muscle? And so I'm always trying to experiment and knowing that not everyone will be able to do that, but other people can do even more. But we have to absolutely hold people in power um, to account. We have to challenge them. It, we cannot sit back and relax at all. And I keep coming back to... We have to make sure we can um, do this with a sense of love and joy because otherwise you will burn out, you will get tired, you will get potentially cynical and, and stop doing the work. But this is long game work, lifelong work, multi-generational work. And so it's like how can we sustain ourselves? And, and my personal experience is like I've got to inject the joy and the love throughout, um, which is not hard. It's just it's about just taking the time to build the community um, play basketball with my daughter, you know, all those critically important things that are part of this this life as well. I love your equitable approach. It's a very equitable approach to say I have more capacity than others to make change and therefore I should do that and those who are only able to make limited change in whatever way should focus on that and ultimately, hopefully, all that change adds up, right? So your book, The Good Life, is a very practical guide to environmental and social sustainability. But you say that the starting point for the journey, the sustainability journey of practice and implementation is knowing your values Mm. and living those values. Uh, I know here at Griffith University, values are are very core to the university's mission and and approach. Uh, And you ask people to answer four questions to help them understand their values so if I ask you these questions, can you explain to people yeah. how this process works sure. and how knowing your values Im- impacts change? Mm. So the first one that you ask is, what do you love most about this world? Mm. I love it when people, uh, ordinary people, uh, do extraordinary things and, and remember that anyone can do them. I love it when people step up, challenge themselves and have a crack. And that is the most beautiful thing you'll see, I, I can see. Okay, I like that. Um, I, I also come from a theatre background. Uh-huh. And my equivalent of that would be 
what I love most about theatre is when, that you can make something from nothing, mm. that somebody comes to you and says, I've got this idea, yeah. and you end up with a full-blown production that's or festival or, or something. Mm. And I think that's sort of a similar thing, that you can start with nothing or very yeah. little, yeah. And, but you can and build it into something. Just with your imagination. Imagination is yeah. the most powerful thing. It's the first step to changing the world, if you like. You know, I'm like, that's fantastic. <laughs> okay, great. So the second question is, how are you personally interested in growing a better world with your daily actions? I'm really interested. People know me mostly for my work with around gardening and landscape management um, in my personal garden, and, but I'm really interested in what happens beyond my fence line. So I'm really interested in what I can do with community work. I have a great life, a really good life, but I'm more interested in, in how, helping other people have a good life. And so, um, oh, I can't remember the question. What was the question? <laughs> how, uh, it's all good. How are you personally interested in growing a better world yeah. with your daily actions? Yeah. And I think it comes back to collectivising. If I, I do my little individual things, I'm always trying to join the dots. How does my little action over here, growing food, connect with somebody else around the corner? And it might be through sharing, connecting, education, um, whatever that might be. How does my vote count in the upcoming election referendum, what is it that collectively we can do with our individual actions where we point our energy? I love that stuff. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I love also the metaphor of thinking beyond your fence yes. line, yeah. thinking beyond the limitations of where you might be. Yeah. And obviously connecting the dots is it's fundamental in sustainability because people and planet are interconnected fundamentally. We can't get away from that. The third question is, what type of human would you like to be? Oh, look, this is such a good one. I want to be my full self. I want, that's the type of one, a human I want to be. I reckon when we're born, we're all pretty perfect and then throughout life we get a little bit chipped and things get a bit, bit sideways. And, like, imagine if we were just our full, unbridled, uncensored selves. I think we would be really powerful people. I think we'd be really kind. I think we'd be so kind to each other. I think we'd be incredibly thoughtful about the impact we have on the world so I I wish that for everybody not just for myself imagine if we were just just heart open-hearted and just up for it oh so good you're supremely generous and trusting I think I'm probably a bit more cynical than you but maybe I've been at university no no <laughs> look I, I talk about this a lot the older I get I'm like I can the layers of life are heavy I get it like the things happen challenges happen in work in our personal lives and, I, and I'm really and I, 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 just like other people, I experience that too and I can feel that getting heavier and I'm, I'm really interested in like how can we make sure we can carry all that life with us and still make sure we don't lose, lose our sparkle, you know, we can still shine through. Absolutely and I, I'm someone who has also been impacted by, by disasters and what I did learn from both of those experiences was that people do, can, total strangers, you know, supported us, gave us help, um, for no reason other than they just wanted to help, um, you know. So I think that sometimes you have to remind yourself that people are, most people are fundamentally good mm. uh, and don't always have the opportunity maybe to show that goodness. Yep. But it's there. It is there. Yep. The fourth question is, what's your biggest hope or hopes for our world? Look, it's going to sound repetitive, but I hope people remem remember how powerful we are, that there is that collectively we are billionaires, we're trillionaires collectively, that we are the most powerful politician or like governance framework when we collectivise. We can 
do anything when we put our brains and hearts to it. That's that's what I hope. And I, I know that's a repetitive thing, but I think it's one of the most important things. Okay. So you've explained what these values are, why they're important, but you also say that knowing and living your values is a radical act. Why is it a radical act? Oh, so when we're born into the world, people say, hello, welcome, so lovely to have you here. And then they, they gradually introduce uh, you into the, to the world that you live in, the business as usual framework, and they say, please perpetuate this. Just slot on in, get your education, do your job and keep it going. But I really believe that once you start to unearth, articulate and live towards your values, you'll, you'll notice tensions between the business as usual model and what you hold most dear because values are what you hold most dear and that's how you want to be in the world but also what you would like to uh, protect and look, look after in the world. And so I, I think the most radical thing we can do is live towards your values because straight away you, you're going to um, want to outgrow the status quo, which is very much not fostered and nourished in our business as usual um, society. So I think once you have that, stick it on your fridge, stick it, stick it on your toilet door because you've got to write down and you've got to share it with your people that you live with or that you're close to. And straight away you'll, you'll, you'll start to notice behaviour change. You'll go, oh, I'm going, to, I'm going to spend my money differently. I'm going to spend my time differently. I'm going to pursue certain paths in life with potentially a, a, a different outcome. So it makes you think critically. And I think critical thinking is just a really important thing that we need to keep um, advocating for because that's not always um, nourished broadly in our political conversations and and I think that's a very powerful thing to hold on to and to live towards yeah yeah absolutely I agree with you I, I think there is more work to be done in critical thinking in uh, curiosity mm. I think people's curiosity and for me it's also creative creative thinking creative yeah. thinking and critical thinking for problem solving which is not always nourished in our standardised mm. education systems or communities or families. Yeah. So being able to have those things and, as you say, using privilege as a muscle that you yeah. can then flex yeah. and, and implement is fabulous. Uh, many workplaces, I guess I'm interested in now how can people make these changes in their workplaces as much as in their communities because often our workplaces are our communities. It's where we spend a lot of our time, where people spend, some people spend more time in their workplaces than they do with their families. And we know that many workplaces are increasingly aware of their environmental responsibilities just as they are in their communities and they're aware of their obligations. They're increasingly aware of the risks um, that come with not complying with environmental legislation or, or or tasks and these these are very visible actions like recycling uh, reusing reducing our carbon footprint and they're all tangible and visible but I'm often really for me the more interesting and challenging change is the less visible mm. sustainability issues the behavior change the equity diversity and inclusion so what steps can we take in our workplaces to influence these changes yeah. that are sometimes less tangible and more complex? This is such a really fantastic question because organisations can be really huge, they can be quite small and intimate and the bigger the, your organisation, the more complex and it, it is to work with people. As you mentioned, there's lots of things 
that lots of boxes increasingly that organisations have to tick or aspire to tick to be environmental and sustainably progressive. Uh, however, there's still that non-tangible, the invisible structures which aren't always addressed. You can have a really shitty business, excuse my language, who are ticking all the environmental boxes, but it, you, it's just horrible to be there. And I think one thing that comes to mind when I think about this is around people culture, so people care and uh, what are the communities that we want to be? How do we want to turn up for each other? And something that comes to my mind is a, a term called um, by Roman Krasnarik, who was a philosopher, and he wrote a book called The Good Ancestor. And he it's, he put some language around some things that a lot of us have been doing for a long time. But he says, oh, imagine if people were time rebels. And being a time rebel is all about uh, intergenerational justice, so acting on behalf of future generations. And you can do this in your personal life, but he, he talks a lot about, writes a lot about how it can be used in organisational structures, that's a council, a, a, a more conventional business or university. And he said it's, it's about long-term thinking. Um, and he, he hones it on certain things around environmental management, but you can use it for anything. So you could, you could be, um, you know, you have to make a decision. Everyone has to vote on a thing. Uh, and so half the room will be from present time, but the other half of the room will be from 100 years in the future. And you have to discuss and vote accordingly. And these kinds of invisible structures produce really different outcomes because you're having a long-term um, approach as opposed to we have a chronic short-termism approach to everything, usually a three-year political cycle to determine how we think about things. Um, and I think that's really interesting. I think from that, it could, environmentally it could be how do we want to treat our water systems um, do we want to you know drain the rivers to irrigate our crops or do we want to actually think more holistically about um, uh, environmental management so that 100 years from now uh, there's, there is clean water for people to irrigate and, and drink from and the, and he's got some really great examples how councils in Japan are using this to change their landscape management approaches but I think you could use it socially as well how do we want to relate to each other do we want to have an equitable society where First Nations people are respected, acknowledged, have a place rightfully at the table, you know, and all these different kinds of, you can apply this long-term thinking to everything. I really hold on to that. So I think um, when it comes to organisational culture and how we run things, it might sound like a, a bit of a naff idea, but often these, these ideas which are dismissed as being soft are incredibly savvy quite hard to roll out because it inquires behaviour change, brain changing, and has really tangible outcomes. And I, I'd love that because these tangible outcomes that we need come from the invisible behaviour change that we have to foster and help to instil in people. I love it. Um, I, I interviewed a, a playwright some time ago for this podcast called David Finnegan and David often works with companies and organisations including banks and corporate sector and he uses game theory and gaming and playwriting and creative thinking to help implement behaviour change and change mm. in organisations in relation to sustainability practice. If you were in a room with a group of CEOs at, a, at the World Bank, what would you say to them? What's your recommendation to them? Oh, look, I'd say a few things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say... It all has to be G-rated. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 I'm good, I'm good. I think... <laughs> no, no, no. I think the bigger picture, the broad, big picture, the messaging is uh, um, people... Uh, People and planet before profit, number one, yeah? 
you'd have yeah. to redistribute. Like, we'd have to have some really serious questions about the growth economy. It's it's just not sustainable. It is it's like this weird furphy. Like any anybody can look at that from primary school up to tertiary education, like, and go, that doesn't make sense. You can't keep growing. And I think our global economy is based on that. And so I, I think these are the big conversations. I wouldn't really be able to say anything about, oh, maybe you should fix A and B and then we'll be right. I'm like, this system is a furphy. <laughs> what are we going to do about it? <laughs> well, that's right. And I think the fact that the system is now slowly like climate, like the environment, falling apart is something to, to start leaning into and, and using to say, you know, it has it's not working anymore. Mm. So what's the alternative yeah. from persistently trying to just grow? Yeah, and um, I think it's worth capitalism. Worth mentioning people like Kate Rayworth, who who's written a great book called Donut Donut and Economics and Absolutely it's amazing yeah. Like the solutions are there and that's what's really frustrating. So probably just I bring Kate Rayworth in with me to talk to them and go, we're going to have a chat. <laughs> I think that's important. I think more women should be in boardrooms yeah. challenging yeah. what's probably a, a room full of mostly men, I'm afraid. No, you're right. I do love the idea of being a time rebel yeah. and vive la revolution yeah. uh, of, of time and the environment. Yeah. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. I feel much better and more energised oh. um, than I was before we started. Oh, thank so you. Thank I took you. you on some good tangents, so thanks for bearing with me. <laughs> Not at all. Um, and I think the good life is such a it's, – it's lovely to have such a practical um, guide for people to use mm -hmm. and I have to actually – keep a copy of the page on composting oh. somewhere up on my fridge because I am a compost absolute failure oh, mate. every time. Don't worry. You just keep going. You'll get there, okay? Uh, I don't know. I just never seem to get the mixture right and it always ends up stinky and smelly and full of maggots. But, you know, what can you do? Add more, just do your best. And add more dry brown carbon stuff. I know, I know, but it's never enough. It never works, Hannah. I'll come over and check it out for you. Yeah, you will have to. Thank you so much for talking to us today uh, and all the best with your book and your, your work. It's been fantastic. Yeah, lovely chat, Zachlon. Thank you. The Worker Learner Podcast was brought to you by the Professional Learning Hub, Griffith University's platform for executive and professional education.